0: Life is beautiful. Life is gay when I give myself away. When I live to please Thee, Lord, dancing in Thy ray. Let me see Thee everywhere. Hear Thy melodies in the air. Let me, feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away. When I live to please thee, Lord, dancing in thy ray. Let me see. Feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Let me feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Every morning the sun, when I move forth through crowded ways, in my heart, Lord, ever so silently, I will always think of Thee. In my heart, Lord, ever so silently, I will always think of Thee. Will my path lead me over desert sands, though it take me through bitter storms, In my heart, Lord, ever so silently, I will always think of thee. In my heart, Lord, ever so silently, I will always think of
1: Everyone, welcome to Wednesday of Spiritual Renewal Week. Uh, My name is Atman. I serve here at the village as uh, the village manager. And joining me today on this panel, we have Melody Hansen, who also lives here at the village, is instrumental in the yoga program at the Expanding Light, and is also, as of this year, a new mom, enjoying that journey. We have uh, Brahmachari Kamran Matlock, who serves in the Living Wisdom School here at Ananda Village with the junior high and the high school boys. Nayaswami Padma, with her husband, Hriman, who you heard yesterday, are the directors at Ananda Seattle, have been up there for many years, are founding members of Ananda. And finally, Nayaswami Gyandev, who serves here at the Expanding Light and is the head of the Ananda Yoga programs. So this week is all about finding happiness. And to give you the two second resume of where we've been, we're in the little self, We're moving to the big self. (laughs) We're finding happiness. We're on the spiritual path to find happiness. Yesterday we talked about some of the techniques of meditation. We're going to talk more about that later in the week. Today our topic is about attitudes, that consciousness, those ways of thinking that are going to help us move from the little self to the big self. And each of us is going to take a different aspect of attitude. What I'm going to talk about is courage. And why courage? Why is courage important in finding happiness? Well, courage is important because it's the antidote to fear. And fear is one of the chief weapons of the ego. It's like the, sort of the Monty Python, you know, the ego jumps out. Our chief weapons are fear, <laughs> anger, greed, hatred, jealousy. Well, fear is a big one. LAUGHTER So, we have to to say, how do we get beyond fear? You get beyond fear with courage. Now, fear is something that's basic, as Jyotish was talking about, it's that first chakra, security. We have the body tied to the, they have the soul tied to the body, creating the ego. It doesn't want to let go. There's a lot of uh, issues there of holding on to that, of of that security. Now, fear can be useful. I mean, when the saber-toothed tiger is coming around the corner of the cave, it's important to wake up and do something, and, you know, maybe you want to run away, maybe you want to fight, but most of the time, the fear gets in the way, and it really gets in the way when it becomes this habit pattern, these vortexes the of thought in the subconscious that just starts spinning, and it creates this energy, and it draws things towards it. It starts manifesting the very things that we're fearing, and you know how that can be, how those vortices can happen? Like you you read in the paper, oh, my God, there's pesticides in the food. I'm going to get cancer. And there's metals in the water. How am I going to drink this? I need bottled water in the air. There's an air pollution alert. Oh my God, there's contrails in the sky. There's a conspiracy. Somebody's <laughs> trying to to do this. There's an international conspiracy. And and wait a minute, this guy down the street, he looks kind of weird. What's going on? It's like a meth lab in his house. Oh, my God, I'm changing the locks on my door. I'm going to get a case of chocolate and lock myself in my room. (laughs) (laughs) So it can spiral out of control. (laughs) And you have to Put some energy back a different direction. You have to put out some courage. Well, what is courage? Courage isn't acting when there's no fear. It's acting in spite of there being fear. Courage is just non-attachment to the fears. you got these fears going on. Just don't be attached to them. Don't be drawn into that. Just say, you know, it's okay. I can breathe. I can act. I'm moving beyond these little vortices of thought. Now, the big one... Of fear is, of course, the fear for the the physical mortal frame. Mortal. We're going to die. There's injury. There's disease. There's death. It's kind of ingrained in our DNA, this this fear of death. And it goes and it colors a lot. There was a guy Ernest Becker in the 70s won the Pulitzer Prize for writing a book called Denial of Death. And his whole thesis was that all these civilizations, all these religions, all these things that come out was all about us trying to deal with our own mortality. Well, that may be true or not, but anyway, death, it's a big one. But when you get on the spiritual path, what do the masters tell us? They tell us, you know, death is no big deal. It's a transition. It's something that you just move on. This body is cast off like a garment. In the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, in typical fashion of the Bhagavad Gita, it gives us to this in great detail. And Arjuna, it doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to kill his relatives in the battle of Kurukshetra. So Krishna starts instructing him and he says, you know, why are you afraid of death You know, why are you? You are the immortal soul. You are indestructible. You are unchangeable. You are unmovable. You are ineffable. You cannot be born. You cannot die. It always is. It will always be. It will never cease to be. Weapons cannot cut it. Water cannot drown it. Fire cannot burn it. Wind cannot wither it. You will always be. There's nothing to worry about. (laughs) It's not, you are the immortal soul. And once we get that into our, our sense, into our DNA, into our, our being, a lot of these fears can drop away. What's the worst thing that can happen? It's usually it traces back to, I'm going to die. Well, when you get rid of the fear that you're going to die, when you have the courage to just say, no, I really believe what all these masters are telling me. I believe what all these books about that are coming out about uh, life after life and you know near-death experiences. I really believe that stuff. And... I'm not going to worry about death anymore. Master, in one of his lessons in the 1930s, he has, these, and he has this beautiful frankness and, and way with words that he puts, these, especially in his early lessons, and he, he kind of sums it up as said, there's nothing to fear. If you're not dead, you're alive. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're dead, there's nothing to worry about because everything's gone and it's all over. <laughs> so get over it. There's nothing to worry about. Now, of course, when you go beyond, you can go beyond the fears of of death, and there's lots of other little niggling fears. There's the fear of, like Jyotish was mentioning, the fear of losing your fame, losing your power, losing your money. There's all those little peer fears, I call them, about you know relating to other people, the fear of disprove, displeasing your parents, of losing your friends. Of not fitting in, of not having the right shoes, of not, <laughs> <laughs> of not being able to, to play your part, of letting people down, of not doing a good job. There's just these endless little vortices of fear, and what we need to do is to stop it and put that courage out there. Detach. Stop that reactive process. Courage, just the detachment from those fears and look them straight in the eye. It's like Yukteswar, in, in the autobiography of Yogi, a uh, master asked him for, he uh, said, give me, you know, give me some illustrations of what your personal life was like. And he chose three little illustrations, one of which was about fear. And if you remember the story, uh, when Yukteshwar was small, his mother told him this horrific story about a, a ghost or a monster that was hidden in this darkened chamber. And what did Yukteswar do? He immediately ran to the darkened chamber, threw open the door, and then told his mother that he was really disappointed that he didn't get to see the ghost. <laughs> and the, the, the moral, of course, is look fear in the face and it will cease to bother you. So all these little fears, what do we do? We have to just move aside. You have to take a deep breath. You have to open up to that. Master calls it, it says, turning on the electricity of calmness and nonchalance. I mean, that was <laughs> what he wanted to do to, uh, to get against fears. So you detach he said also an interesting thing, if you can't get out of the fears, because sometimes, I mean, I'm making light of this, but fears are real. I mean, fears rule a lot of people. Fears rule our subconscious often. And sometimes it's hard to get out of that vortex. And one of the things he said to do is if you're really stuck in one, what you need to do is to distract the mind. I mean, he even said, you know, amusements of an interesting book. Read some light distraction. Get your mind off that fear. When it's off of that fear... Then reroute your energy, bring in your willpower, and act. The most important thing, and this is courage again, is acting. Don't get shrunk into that littleness of the self, of the egoic desires, of that little vortex, and get out of that. And realize that all these little fears... It's delusion. It's the delusion of your self-identifications of the ego, this delusion that somehow my happiness is conditioned by what's outside me, that I need to look, I need to pay attention to all that. Pay attention to your peace that you find in meditation. That's another place, you know, prayer, meditation, that bliss, peace. That's where you find, you get out of those fears, you find those things. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the, specifically, the devotee, because everybody deals with these fears—the fears of death and the peer fears and all these little things. But there's—I want to uh, highlight three key moments on the path when courage is is particularly important, and I think it's it's good to hold on to and to be ready for. You may have gone through these moments; you, they may come again, but it's critical. The first one is when. After studying the spiritual path, after looking at these teachings, we come to that point in our lives when we say, you know, I'm really tired of this anguishing monotony of my life. I want to put the spiritual search central in my life. I want to give up the known, all my known little pleasures and pains. And I know it's not perfect, but it's known and it's comfortable and it's nice it's really hard to give that up for the unknown of what the Master's promise is, eternal bliss, is absolute joy. But there comes a moment in each devotee's life when you really have to look and you really have to say, I am making this choice. I am putting forth the energy, the will, the courage that I am going to put God and the spiritual path foremost in my life. And this moment may come more than once. I have a very vivid memory of a time in my life when, I was actually at a couples workshop before I had moved to Ananda, and we were being led through these exercises of what's your vision for the future and what do you want to do in life? And and I got into this space and I just said, you know, what I really want to do in life is look for God. I want to dedicate myself to the spiritual surf. I don't want to follow that well-worn path of name, fame, career, material things pleasing my parents. I want to do something different. I want to find God. And fortunately, my wife agreed with me in this vision. <laughs> and so we were able to move to Ananda and keep going. But that was, it's a key moment, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. The second point in the life where it takes an incredible amount of courage in the life of a devotee is once you've got into these teachings, you see them, it's just to keep putting out the courageous energy to hold maya at bay, to say, no. This world is not real. I am just playing a part. The divine dramatist has written this beautiful play. I'm just here on this stage acting my part. All these players around me, this is not real. This is not my home. My home is elsewhere. It's off stage, it's somewhere else. It takes a great deal of energy to hold the world at bay because. All those sweetly singing sirens along the way. Oh, come, more money, more pleasure, more sex, more power. Yes, come. Say no. You have to put out the courage to hold that at bay because Maya, that delusion is strong, as as Jyotish mentioned. When God created this, He created this with a lot of power, that delusion. So it takes continued courage. It also takes holding on to the hand of the masters because the master is there. The master is there tapping you on the shoulder and said stop looking at that screen of light and shadow that play on the screen of duality look inside look up look to the projector what is shining out what is projecting this show out here and the masters it's like Yogananda used to tap his devotees on the on the shoulder in the movie and point to the projector screen you know it's just all a play so hold on to the master and point to the projector And the last one on this where you need a lot of courage is to be able to, what is the last one? (laughs) It's when you, uh, it'll come. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's go on. Well, it's right there. (laughs) It's the courage to stand up in front of people. <laughs> uh, anyway, it'll come. Okay, so let's uh, move on. Wanted to, uh, I wanted to tell another story that, that Master told. It's, uh, it sort of typifies this story. This, uh, Oh, I know what it is. I got it. Okay, <laughs> Okay. this is, this is actually, it's, it's the most scary one. And so it's, that's why it kind of slipped out. But it's the, it's the courage to, after you're on the spiritual path and you're holding Maya at bay, and it's the courage of self-honesty to really look in the mirror, look at yourself, look at yourself with all the faults, all the problems, and just stand back and go yeah, that's a piece of work. <laughs> we got a job to do here. This, this may not be a small project, reforming this. And to not shrink back into that ego consciousness, into that smallness, into that comfort of the known, it's really, really important. And it's really hard. It takes a lot of courage to look yourself and see all your faults and just say, you know, I don't care. I'm with God. I'm with Guru. We're going to do this together. This is going to work. And uh, master told a story that typifies this delusion that we're in, and that's the, the story of the, the lion that thought he was a lamb. And I just want to finish with that story and draw it all to a close here. So many of you know this story, but it's a wonderful story to keep in mind, a wonderful image. And there was a lioness who was pregnant who was uh, having more and more difficulty hunting as she got heavier and heavier with the lion cub in her belly. And she was somewhat despairing and was having trouble feeding herself. And she came to a a flock of sheep she found. She was suddenly overjoyed. Oh, easy prey. Here it is. I can eat again. This is great. So she stalks up on the lions and with the last ounce of all her energy, takes her weighty body and pounces on a little sheep and and drags it off to eat it. Well, when she pounced, she gave birth to the lioness and didn't realize it. And this little lion cub was left there amidst the herd of, of sheep. And one of the ewes in the herd took pity upon this little sheep and started raising it as as their own, as her own. And this lion grew up thinking it was a sheep. It learned to bah, bah, <laughs> learned to bleat. It learned to graze, eat grass. It learned to stay in the herd. It learned to not wander off on its own and just follow the life of a sheep and then a couple of years later when the lion cub had grown there was uh, another lion who came and was hunting and he was also overjoyed to see this smorgasbord of food <laughs> sitting right there and he started sneaking up on the lions to to eat them and suddenly saw this uh, so was sneaking up on the sheep and he suddenly saw this lion cub there And he said Oh, is there another lion hunting here before? And he watched it, and it was eating grass, and it was... (laughs) Oh, that's really strange. So he decided to abandon his hunt for a while, and he went after this little lion, and the little lion ran away, and it was hiding its head, and suddenly it got frozen with fear. He said, Don't eat me, don't eat me, don't eat me, please don't eat me. And the little lion said, Wake up! You are a lion! He said, No, I'm not. I'm a sheep, I'm a sheep, I'm a sheep. (laughs) And he just sat there, and so the lion grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, dragged him over to a, a pool, and shoved his face into the pool and said, you are a lion. And the lion said, don't eat me, don't eat me, don't eat me. And he opened his eyes and said, whoa, there's two lions. Oh, my God, there's two lions. <laughs> then he realized, and said, no, that's me. I am a lion. I am not a sheep. And he... Learn to roar, he learned to be a sheep. We are that lion. Give up this little attachment, this little bleeding ego of the sheep. Roar with a lion of self-realization. And uh, last thing that's helped me a lot that I always try to keep when I'm looking for courage is to really think about the life of the masters. If you look at the masters, most masters had incredible uh, energy and courage and just look at our own master yogananda and some of his other lives if not in this life he was uh, william the conqueror the duke of normandy and he okay. would lead battle charges at one point he you know he he ran two horses out from under him when he was leading this charge to get to this castle. He would be out there in the forefront. He inspired incredible loyalty and devotion among his soldiers because of that courage he showed. And Arjuna, Arjuna was also Yogananda in another life. And think of Krishna driving the chariot, the Guru, and him going out to lay waste to the battlefields of Kurukshetra and and to defeat, you know, just the the soldiers of material desire, leaving them. You know, in swaths of dead around them. Just meditate on those images. It's very, very powerful. The the masters are out there just saying, Arise, devotee, arise, awake. You are not this little soul. You are not these material desires. You are not these bundles of self definitions. You are the immortal soul. You are the immortal Atman. Grab your birthright. Move on to the battlefield of life with your sword held high. Fix your eyes on the goal. Always see that truth. With your last gasping breath, keep moving forward until you attain that truth. Perfect happiness, eternal bliss, oneness with God.
2: That before I spoke, thank you. (laughs) Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be speaking at such a special event with all of you dedicated disciples and true seekers. I remember my first spiritual renewal week was more than 10 years ago when my family and I visited visited the village for the first time, and uh, we had no idea that such a week of upliftment could exist on this planet. The classes, the music, the... Inspiration and performances were like nothing we had ever experienced. And we literally felt a spiritual high from being in these vibrations with all these joyful people and um, especially being in Swamiji's presence. We could feel like it was the most important thing we could be doing for ourselves spiritually. And so my family and I made it a tradition to come back um, for this week every year except when they found out I was speaking, none of them showed up. (laughs) Oh, well, it's probably for the better. (laughs) I was remembering a how-to-meditate class that my little sister and I attended. Um, We were always the youngest people at the classes, and Diksha was teaching this one. And at one point, she asked the group, why do we tense and relax the body before we meditate? Everybody was silent. I guess no one knew the answer. And I was 14 years old, and I thought, I'm going to give this a shot. So I raised my hand and said, um, to help relax the body? And she said, very good, to help relax the body. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess the spiritual path is a lot simpler than I thought. <laughs> Thanks to Dick Shy, I embarked on the spiritual path. I wanted to base my talk this morning on something that Sister Kiana Mata said. She was Master's most advanced woman disciple, and she said many great things, but this particular quote is on right attitude. She said, These three instructions, plus meditation, contain the only rule of life that any disciple needs. Detachment, realization of God as the giver, and unruffled patience. As long as we fail in any one of these three, we still have a spiritual, a serious spiritual defect to overcome. I love how she says, serious spiritual defect. <laughs> this is true. Um, so the first attitude, detachment. I don't think this attitude is achieved by simply deciding to be carefree about whatever comes your way. If that were true, it would mean all of the world's hippies were one-third of the way from self-realization. <laughs> And who knows, maybe they are. I think Ananta is an exception. (laughs) When I think of detachment, it makes me think of someone who has overcome all of their likes and dislikes, who um, has no more egoic desires, and who wishes only to do the will of God. <clears throat> and this reminds me of a beautiful disciple, Maria Warner, who was a disciple for 30 years. And she lived here at Ananda Village for uh, since 1980. And she fought cancer for 10 years. And um, toward the end of her life, she could feel that cancer moving to her brain. And many of us know the beautiful story that her husband, Deversy, shared with us, that she said something that many of us have memorized and we could all use as a spiritual practice. As Devershi was wheeling her into the room to receive an MRI, she could feel um, his concern for her. And sensing that she said to him kindly but firmly, detach yourself. Control the reactive process. Live the teachings. And she was only thinking of him in that moment, not of herself. And How did she achieve such a deep state? She was obviously practicing detachment herself because she was enduring great physical pain. She was accepting the fact that her life was just about to end, which it did three weeks later, and she was able to stay even-minded under such a challenging circumstance. I think ultimately it came from a life dedicated to God and her guru to having a daily practice of meditation, particularly Kriya Yoga, where you can work with the rising and falling currents in the deep spine, as we're told are directly related to our attachments to this world. And I'm sure that Maria experienced deep states of stillness in her meditations where God's peace could be felt, and in that, bringing it into her day, and also realizing that this world of duality or light and dark is really only just God's light and shadows. And Swamiji said that Maria achieved a state of maturity that where nothing could touch her. And several times she told Devershi when he expressed concern, don't worry, I'm free. And she was a beautiful example of someone who lived the teachings daily. I had an experience where I was able to control the reactive process in a very simple way by the use of a technique that I learned from Anandi and Bharat when they taught a class at the village called um, Happiness and Success Through Yoga Principles. They explained that if you're in a challenging situation and you need to raise your energy quickly or you need to move through sort of a blockage of unwillingness, all you need to do is take a deep inhalation and just imagine or feel... The energy in your spine rising up and then cast that energy into the spiritual eye, the point between the eyebrows. And then hopefully you can meet that situation um, with better energy. You could even use this technique while you're in a conversation with someone and things are becoming challenging. It's not like the person is going to see you go um, swa, um. <laughs> You might be doing that inwardly, but they're not going to see it. Um, but that's not when I used the technique. It came um, to me to be helpful in a different circumstance. It's when I had a very bad case of poison oak, especially on my forearm. And I had tried almost every kind of remedy. If you've ever had poison oak, you know it's oily, itchy, um, irritating, and it makes activities like meditating and sleeping almost impossible. So you start to lose your sanity. Uh, <laughs> so I was very desperate And there was one uh, remedy I hadn't tried because I was avoiding it. Someone told me, put your arm underneath hot water to draw the oils out. And just the thought of that made my body cringe because I knew it would be painful. So I had to do it. And I was there. I was in the shower, and thinking, okay, here I gotta, I gotta go for this. I started turning up the heat because I was used to having cold showers, uh, not to irritate the rash. And I finally got the courage to uh, put my arm underneath that hot water, and just my whole body tensed up. It was incredibly painful. I just every body cell wanted to yell out in pain. And all of a sudden, I remembered that technique, and I took a deep breath in and just offered up that experience to the spiritual eye and as i exhaled to my surprise i looked down at my arm and there was just no pain i felt completely better there was no irritation i actually felt totally calm and centered i just stood there in the shower completely shocked at how well this technique worked i didn't think it was going to work that good And, you know, one moment ago, I was so engrossed and overwhelmed by what was happening to me. A moment later, it was completely gone. So it was very effective. The second um, right attitude that Sister Gyanamata mentioned was realization of God as the giver. To me, this means realizing and seeing that God is the giver behind everything all situations that come to us, even the very challenging obstacles. And um, when I think of someone who really embodied this uh, quality, it reminds me of our dear friend from the community, Andy Lyon, who passed away last year only on August 30th. Um, He was only 24 years old when he passed, and he had fought uh, cancer for about five years. And I had the privilege of living with Andy at the young adults group home that we had at the time while he lived here. And I also got to work with him at Master's Market. And he was kind of like a brother to me in many ways. And um, the whole time that I knew Andy, he never even once mentioned that he had cancer. I sort of heard it in the distance from other people that he was sick and fighting something, but I just assumed Whatever it was, he was doing great with it because he never showed any sign of weakness. And so at one point, um, while Andy was living at the village, he decided he wanted to uh, walk the Pacific Crest Trail, which is more than 2,500 miles from uh, Mexico to Canada. That's a challenging journey for someone completely healthy, let alone someone fighting cancer. And... um, He did complete it over six and a half months, but it took great courage to set such a goal and to go for it, not knowing what was going to come of his body, the physical challenges that he went through. I wish I had more time to tell about his inspiring journey, but his mom said that he wanted to be out in nature with uh, Divine Mother's energy. He wanted to be in the fresh air and sunlight, which he knew would be so good for him, and he wanted to be out in a place where people weren't worrying about him. <laughs> and um, he didn't want to have that label that I have cancer. And so he was able to be free of that while he hiked. And um, while he was on the trail, um, every morning he would see the sunrise. And he would look at it and just calmly say to himself, Another day. And he was just so grateful for the time that he had. He really lived in the present moment because he didn't know when his time would end. And the way that he accepted his karma is just incredibly inspiring to us all. Um, So toward the end of uh, his life in the last year, Andy started to feel his body um, failing on him. His internal organs started to shut down. He began to lose the strength of his legs. He was so weak he could barely get in and out of the car, but still he asked his family to drive him from Laguna Beach, where he was living, all the way to the village, a challenging drive for his body. Um, but he loved Ananda so much he really wanted to be here. And his mom said that he was so elated when they got to the Crystal Hermitage Guest House that within four days he passed and surrendered into the next realm. I just think it's so beautiful that because Andy accepted this challenging karma with such grace, openness, and willingness, Divine Mother blessed him by passing on these sacred grounds uh, right next to Swami's home and with all of us praying and thinking for him. So I know that we will continue to learn from his life over the years. The last um, attitude is unruffled patience. Swami said that patience is a prerequisite to every kind of success. If you can work with things as they are, you can then change them into whatever you want them to be. He also said that disappointment comes from wishing things were other than they are. And I think we've all had an experience where we were resisting what was trying to happen. And then finally, when we accepted it, everything changed for the better. We've also heard that patience is the shortest path to God. This can uh, sound kind of funny because patience often requires learning to wait for long periods of time. But we know that on the spiritual path, we're not waiting for God to come to us. He's already here. It is we who have to increase our awareness of his presence. He's right behind our thoughts, behind our every breath. And so we have to coax him to come to us through our love and devotion. Just as the um, beautiful chant says, patient endurance will bring us to victory. Once we have God, we will want nothing more. And there was a man who was having a very challenging period in his life, and he went to his spiritual counselor and said, I just don't have time to do my practices right now. I'm going through so much. I'm just exhausted. And his spiritual counselor said, this is the time when you need your practices the most. That help, that guidance, that deeper attunement to your guru, this is how you're going to get through these tests with his grace. And so I'd just like to close with the uh, beautiful words from, of masters from the song Keep Calling Him. Remain persistent, undepressed, through dark and seeming silence. If in the midst of life, disease, and death, you play the dancer, yet keep calling him, you will receive his answer.
3: That was great, Melody. So, hello, happy people. (laughs) It's great to be speaking with you today, and I hope you're all doing really well with uh, Jyotish's homework that he gave us at the beginning of the week. I hope you didn't forget we're supposed to increase our happiness permanently. (laughs) So I know you're all doing that. I've been practicing that, and I've realized a couple things as I've been thinking about uh, what really makes me happy. Are there different kinds of happiness? Uh, Which type of happiness might I prefer? Where does that happiness come from? Anyways, I've also been looking for ways to better gauge my happiness And one way I was thinking about this yesterday, one way I think is how I wave to people. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, waving is a big part of living at Ananda Village. (laughs) I didn't know that when I came here. And when people come here for the first time and they're driving their car, they're walking down the street, and someone says, hey, Um, they don't always wave back. It can be hard to wave back if you don't have a very high level of happiness sustaining you. And sometimes when I'm in a grumpy mood, or um, maybe uh, I'm tired, or um, something like that, and somebody waves to me, I'll just kind of be like, oh, hey. Or, um, you know, I'm driving my car, and they wave, they give this big wave, and I might just lift a finger and be like, oh. Yeah. So physically even we express happiness and, we can, and that's the, also the beauty of community that we're able to really physically help each other be more happy um, but you know I've, I've been thinking about this and it ties into attitude and um, it also has to do with um, the type of happiness that we want because there are different types of happiness um, you know when I eat uh, pizza or ice cream I'm very happy it makes me happy. Um, when I spend time with friends, when I uh, do something creative, when I read or write, these things all make me happy. Uh, when I, um, you know, during spiritual renewal week, we all get this little boost of energy or big boost of energy. And a lot of times we have deeper sadhanas and uh, we, we find that it's easier to live the teachings and be disciplined. And that, that I find that to be very... It increases my happiness. And we have these beautiful talks in the morning, and we get to meditate together, and we have kirtans, and we have concerts, and we have plays. All these things make me very, very happy. But I still think there's another type of happiness, a kind of elusive type of happiness that I prefer the most. And that type of happiness, I think, is the the truest, highest type of happiness that we want to steer for. And especially as devotees, um, that's what we really want. And so I'm really glad we're talking about attitude today because that's really the only way we have to choose the type of happiness we want. Attitude is basically the only ability that God has given us to choose the reality that we want to participate in, that we want to live in, and make real. Um, Swamiji wrote some really great um, notes down, discipleship notes for a class he gave as head monk at uh, Self Realization Fellowship, and he talks a lot about attitude. He says attitude is the most important thing on the spiritual path. And he uh, quotes this little rhyme that it goes, uh, Some ships sail east, some ships sail west by the very same winds that blow, for it's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines where you go. And it's, um, Swami says that attitude is the set of our soul. And so we know that like the ships blowing in the wind, the wind is neutral. The wind is outer circumstances in life. It's always going to be neutral. And a really bad sailor can really muck up a really gentle breeze. You know, you could create a storm out of a really light breeze. But a really good sailor, you know, it's the easiest, most effortless thing in the world to just go with the way the wind is blowing. And attitude's like that, too. Attitude is the set of our soul. And so we have to be careful when we're choosing a level of happiness that our attitude is in tune, is at the right frequency for the happiness, for the level of reality that we want to participate in and make real and own And um, it's not always easy, of course. And for the devotee, again, um, and what I would like to speak about today is the attitude of living for God alone. And I think the previous speakers have also touched on this. And it ties in with attitudes of uh, selflessness, self-forgetfulness, the attitude of serving the divine and all. But... um, God has made it very easy for us, and Master and Swamiji have boiled down the teachings to really two points, two main ingredients. And this is very, very good, because um, I I don't know if you know this, but monks aren't famous for being good cooks. And myself in particular, I like my recipes to be very, very simple. Um, I'm actually a big fan of Devershi's cookbook. Some of you may know this. And it has a really wonderful recipe for peanut butter and chips. (laughs) It tells you how to prepare it, how to serve it, detailed instructions, two ingredients, I'm good. And so God has also boiled things down, very simple, two main ingredients. And if we follow these ingredients, if we cook with these ingredients, then we'll find that we can sustain a very high soul happiness and that our attitude will reflect our choosing of that reality. Um, It's not always easy, though. I remember a dream I had once that really illustrated these two main ingredients. And it, dream, this dream also reflects different levels of happiness. And in this dream, I found myself in a really kind of dingy basement. And there was bad energy there. And I was kind of frozen in this chair. And there was some unsavory characters around and I kind of inwardly asked for help master Swamiji help and Swamiji was there and Swamiji led me up this flight of stairs I could move I walked up into this room there was this beautiful room there with beautiful art Um, amazing music was playing there was all kinds of creative things statues and it was beautiful but Swamiji didn't look at anything he didn't listen to the music he just walked up another flight of stairs into another room and I said oh I better follow Swamiji and so I started walking and then I saw oh Look at this beautiful painting. Oh, this music is beautiful. And I started to appreciate and be happy with the types of experiences that were in that room. And after a while, I realized, well, you know, I better follow Swamiji, um, even though I want to stay here. Um, and so it was kind of sad. I had to say goodbye to these lesser types of happinesses. And I went up the stairs, and I went into the next room. And then I saw Swamiji. He was kind of waiting impatiently for, for me there. And then he shot up another flight of stairs into another room, and I said, oh, I've got to follow him. And then I realized that this room was full of um, people in need. I saw friends and family members. I saw some strangers. But all people who were in some sort of need, they were ailing, they needed me. And so I began to find myself going around and helping people, some physically, some I was kind of coaching them through an experience. And um, it was deeply fulfilling. I realized, wow, I'm really making a difference in these people's lives. And there was a deep sense of happiness there. And then after a while, I started to realize, though, again, you know, Swamiji just blew right through. This can't be it. There has to be more. And again, with deep sadness, I had to say goodbye. I had to part with all these people who were in need, who needed me. But I had to say goodbye. I, had to, I knew that I had to go on. And so I followed up the stairs, and this went on and on again several times. And each time, each room was a different type of happiness, a, a better type of happiness, maybe a more sattvic type of happiness. And each time I has, had to say goodbye with great sadness and go to the next level, If not to follow Swamiji, I had to know what was at the top. Um, And eventually I did come to the top and there was this great balcony and I looked down and saw all these little apartments of false deluding happiness and I turned around and there was these great big double doors and they burst open and Swamiji and Master were there holding hands and they came with tremendous power and they said, there are only two things to remember on the spiritual path, love God and love all as God. And I woke up with those words on my lips and I just knew, I knew those are the two ingredients that help us live for God alone. Those are the two ingredients that put God as the pole star of our life, that lead us single pointedly towards the goal, towards ultimate happiness and God. And it's not always easy, but at least even though it's boiled down, it's not always easy. We have to, we have to learn to get ourselves out of the way and put God's will above our will. And um, there's a lot of sadness, strangely enough, in pursuing ultimate universal happiness god's happiness and in fact when we pray and ask god to give us divine happiness we might be asking god to give us a lot of suffering and a lot of tests and trials and it can be very difficult it reminds me of uh that poem that master loved to quote by francis thompson called the hound of heaven and he compares god to a a weed um a divine weed but still a weed, and he says, this weed suffers no other flowers than its own, and it chars the garden of his happiness, and it's kind of bleak, but it, in this way, God can seem to be cruel, or unfair, or um, uh, without justice, because all the types of happinesses in our life that aren't sustainable, that are on lesser octaves, and especially as we become devotees and pray that will be done, we ask God's uh, grace to come, it can create, it can make things very hard. We're asking for a very high level of happiness and we have to be ready for it. Um, you know, Sister Gyanamata also says, who Melody introduced, um, she points out something that's also valuable and worth mentioning regarding putting God's will above our will and making God the the focus, the main shining goal of our life. She points out a quality or an attitude that she calls the um, the distinguishing mark of perfect discipleship and so as a as a disciple when Ganamata says a distinguishing mark of perfect discipleship I pay attention she has my attention there and um, I had an experience once where I learned this distinguishing mark and I still am practicing it it's not easy but um, Altman mentioned I'm a teacher here and I, I've taught at several schools across California and one summer, I found myself teaching summer school in an in a inner-city school, in and it was kind of a dangerous area. The school itself was safe, but the neighborhoods were a little dangerous, and our principal called all the teachers in, and she said, you know, one of you are going to have to leave. We don't have enough students to sustain this amount of teachers, and the school that you're going to have to go to is, is worse than this. It's actually a very dangerous school, and um, it's not, it's not going to be fun. She, kind of, she didn't try to break the news softly. And many of the teachers said, oh, if I get picked, I quit, that's it. And I thought instantly, well, I better volunteer. These guys, no one here is going to be able to take this. And um, might as well save them the suffering and try to be willing. But I had a weird feeling in my heart. I was kind of frozen. And earlier that morning, I'd actually been reading the Bhagavad Gita, and I was reading a stanza where Krishna, uh, talks about the sin of stealing somebody else's dharma. He says, you have to be careful not to influence or overtake or take um, experiences that belong to somebody else, dharma that belongs to somebody else. And I said, well, maybe somebody needs to go to this really awful school. Maybe it's not my dharma. I don't want to take their dharma. And uh, it sounds convenient now. But um, in any case... I didn't volunteer, and of course, they drew a name out of a hat, and it was the worst person for the job. It was this very new, very fresh young lady. She was extremely pregnant, and it was not the right for her. And she instantly started crying, and it was just bad. And I said, okay, God, I have to volunteer. And now there's no way. I I mean, inwardly, I was checking in with the guru. I was checking in with God, saying, "Thy will be done. If this is right for her, then I shouldn't interfere. I should give her my blessings. I should pray for her. But at the same time, I prayed, God, what, are you crazy? Sending this pregnant lady into this awful, dangerous school? That's crazy. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I felt even more strongly, don't interfere. Just wait. Be patient. See how things unfold. I walked back to my car. I sat in my car. I checked in with God again. If this is really what you want, I'm, I'm happy to volunteer if you ask me to, if I feel guidance to go back. And just as I was checking in, I was listening it, things just totally switched, a flip-flop of energy. And I heard in my head through my own thoughts, you know, go, go volunteer, go save her. And I ran to the other side of the parking lot, and I found her, and she was still crying, and she was still extremely pregnant. And it was, <laughs> I said, okay, I'll volunteer. I'll go to the really awful, dangerous school. Um, and she kept crying, I guess out of joy, but just she just kept crying. And what I learned from that experience was that God is always speaking to us and his will is always trying to express itself through us. But sometimes it can be very subtle and it can change. And it, we can't just assume that the guidance we're getting now won't change along the, the road. And if we really want to put God's will at the forefront of our life, this is what Yanamata said. She said, you have to be ready to meet God with jubilant heart, ready hands and ready feet. And if we're not always willing and able and ready to meet God's will and to express God's will, then even if we all the devotion in the world won't prove to ourselves and won't prove to God that we are choosing the highest level of happiness, that we are putting God as the pole star of our life. Um, and I'm still practicing that today. The distinguishing mark of a perfect disciple, Ganamata was always listening around Yogananda. She was never speaking. She was always listening for inner guidance whenever he walked into the room. And many times she'd hear in her head his voice giving him guidance. And so. I wish for all of you today that through the attitude of living for God alone, through the attitude of making God the pole star of your life, you find a deeper uh, soul happiness that only grows and gets better as you have more years on the path. Bless you all.
4: How feels everyone? How is everyone? That's what I want to talk about today. Have a seat. <laughs> I was thinking coming over here, I could be taking a nap with my granddaughter right now. <laughs> Instead, I'm here talking about awake and ready. But isn't it interesting when you reflect on it, when I started to reflect on it, when they asked us to pick an attitude, that we start every Sunday service with that those questions don't we how feels everyone awake and ready that's what master used to do yogananda when he would give talks maybe not every single time but often he would ask that question at the beginning of a talk and swamiji thought it was so pertinent that he placed it at the beginning of every sunday service every week We try to remember to stay awake and ready. In fact, we say that, we experience saying that right before we sit and absorb the inspiration of the service, the truth, the vibration of the service, because it makes us more open when we are awake and ready. And I think probably if we had a list of attitudes, you know, that um, psychology and the world would have, I bet there isn't one called Awaken Ready, but I'm adding that one to our list because it's Master's very own contribution. And it's very, very important to us on the spiritual path to be open, to be receptive, and to remind ourselves constantly to be in that state. I know through the years when Swami Kriyananda would call or when I needed to call him for some reason, I made it a practice always to have a picture of Yogananda present when I was speaking with him on the telephone, to stare into Yogananda's eyes I placed my telephones in the house and on my desk at work in such a way that that was always there. And of course, it shouldn't be just for when Swamiji called, but it was a good and important practice because in staring in Yogananda's eyes, I made my feeble attempt (laughs) to be more and more in God remembrance and to be getting that ego out of the way, all those little thoughts and predilections, all those opinions and likes and dislikes out of the way so I could hear whatever it is that he was communicating with me at that point in time to the best of my ability. And that's not easy to do because that's why we're here. We're all here because we still have those egos, right? And to put it out of the way so we can hear, so we can listen, so we can be open and receptive is, first and foremost, begins our Sunday service on the spiritual path. That sense of also the discernment, having the discernment, being able to read between the lines, being able to hear the tone of voice in every interaction that we have in our lives. It was a good practice, and I still try to practice it to this day, especially when people come to me for with their troubles and for advice. I try to always place myself to be looking in Yogananda's eyes at some point during those conversations, to be able to be in remembrance and to be able to stay awake. And ready. It's a. It's first and foremost in our pathway to happiness. It brings us to openness. It brings us to receptivity. It brings us to all those qualities folded in to that thought. And Master Yogananda taught his direct disciples in so many ways he would offer them pearls of wisdom, pearls of truth. And they could hear it only to the extent that they were ready to hear. Swami himself, Kriyananda, tells the story of the lecture at Beverly Hills Garden Party that Master gave. And I think this is the anniversary of it this very day today. And out of 800 people present, he was the only one who had the, the karma and the openness and the receptivity at that point to hear that call of launching the movement of spiritual communities, of intentional communities. But there were 800 people present. How many times are we sitting in a room and we hear things said, beautiful things of wisdom, and we walk away and we all hear different things? because we're listening through our own filters. So Master would throw out these pearls of wisdom, and the direct disciples would pick them up as their own transparency of ego allowed them to pick it up. But he never imposed that wisdom. He never forced people to do anything. And Swami Kriyananda Learned that and shared that same principle with us all. He never imposed. He simply offered. I was reflecting on this the other day that um, we were in Palo Alto with him once at um, the apartment the Pravers used to live in with the sliding glass doors, the double apartment. And there were about a dozen of us and as would, I don't remember why we went, there was some event or some meeting, and we were. It was the evening we were relaxing together, and we put on a proverbial Swami movie to watch. And um, he was known for his love of Bambi and you know movies like that. And so this night, I think it was an Audrey Hepburn movie. And we were about ten minutes into it, and the room was dark, and I noticed that. Um, Most of the men were not there. (laughs) And then right in that moment, I noticed that a couple of the men were sliding out sideways through the sliding glass door. And Swami was sitting over maybe 15 feet away, 8 feet, 10 feet away from them. And very quietly, as we're all watching this movie, he said, are you going to watch the movie Shredder or The Shredder? (laughs) You know, ears to hear, okay. (laughs) But it was perfect. That's all he said. It was beautiful. It was funny. It was insightful. And it was perfect. He never mentioned it again. I never heard him lecturing us about what kind of movies we should or shouldn't watch. You know, it never came up in that context again. That was it. But we have to listen and then absorb and then take it in because the quality, as I'm calling it, is awake and ready. And it's really two things, isn't it? Are we awake? Or are we like my teenage son, Kashi, used to be, when he had to get up to go to school and I'd go in the room and I'd wake him up and you know he'd be up and he'd be starting to dress and 10 minutes later I'd come back in and he's snoring away (laughs) sleeping again and at some point I got an alarm that was really really awful sounding and I placed it way on the other side of the room that thing would go for 45 minutes (laughs) teenagehood it was impossible to get him up you know but it's not just teenagers i mean that's that's us you know we hear the call we know how to live we know what those right attitudes are but actually doing them is something else so that's the second part of awake and ready now we're awake are we ready are we ready I like movies with action in them. What do I do about that? That's how I let my hair down. Okay? When do I give that up? When do I go for Bambi? (laughs) You know? Maybe mix it up a little bit. It's like St. Augustine who said, Lord, make me good, but not yet. You know? We know the teaching, we're awake to it, we're inspired by it, we dedicate our lives to it, but are we ready? Are we ready to act? Yogananda said, the time for knowing God has come. That means now. That means in this moment, when he was working with Swami Kriyananda he would say, hurry up, time is wasting, hurry, hurry. Why? Hurry. Okay, Because we have to act, and we have to act in this moment. And when we procrastinate, we miss the moment. Life is a battle. We need to seize it, as so beautifully expressed by Atman today with courage. We need to seize it. Because in, in life, in just regular life, it's the same in the spiritual life. There's no such thing as standing still. We're either moving forward or we're moving back. There's no, I want a break now, God. There's either moving forward or there's moving back. And it's essential for us to put out the energy to move forward, or life will pass us by, a wave, another wind will blow, and take us in another direction before we even know it. And even when we're not sure about something, and we need to feel it inwardly, and feel that inner guidance, We don't get that by just sitting and thinking about it or even meditating on it. We need to act, put one foot in front of each other towards that guidance. And in that process, in that bringing it to life, we'll be guided to turn right or to turn left or to make this adjustment or that. It's never passive. It's always vibrant and active. And then we're awake and we're ready. And then we want to stay awake and ready. Master himself gave that illustration of the devotee that he would wake up and they'd go back to sleep. You know, they'd be inspired for a little while and go back to sleep. He said, I like that devotee, that Pops up like toast. You know? Awake, ready, stay awake. That's my prayer for you.
5: <laughs> I think Bambi's full of action, personally. <laughs> so much action that from the time I first saw it until uh, when I was probably six years old, I couldn't bear to watch it again for 50 years because it was was just too awful. I brought your textbook for the week with you. Actually, it's your textbook for life. Uh, How to be happy all the time. If you don't have it, um, please get it. It's a wonderful book. And uh, if you've read it, Then you probably know the answer to this question, if you remember it at all. But I'm going to give everybody a quiz question right now from that book. And that is, what is the most important condition for happiness? Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, good. I won't be redundant then. Uh I'll have something to talk about. Even-mindedness. Even-mindedness, Master said, is the most important condition for happiness. Now, this is not the most popular condition in the world, you might say. Most people aren't very interested in even-mindedness. They kind of like that a little bit more up and down sort of thing. And I think their name for even-mindedness would probably be flatlining. (laughs) But for the devotee, we have, uh, even mindedness is, is so crucial for what we're trying to accomplish because it is getting us out of that up and down. You know, when I first decided to move to Ananda Village, I was working uh, for a consulting firm and had a sort of promising, lucrative career in front of me. And when I told my boss what I was doing... Um, it took him quite a while to pick his jaw up off the floor, but he finally did, and and the next time we went out for a run together, we I oh, talked a little about it. He was a very curious person, so he wanted to know what this was about and what this yoga stuff is. It must be something more than yoga postures, and I said, yeah, it is, and we talked about some basic elements of, of yoga, and we... Got to, got to talking about the ups and downs of life, riding that roller coaster of the ups and downs. And, and it, we talked about, or I talked about, you know, cultivating a sense of even-mindedness in the face of all this, not getting sucked into the ups and downs of that roller coaster. And he listened to this for a minute, and he looked at me and he said, I like the roller coaster.
0: <laughs>
5: I said, oh, okay. Um, not everyone is... Interested in getting off the roller coaster. I was listening the other day to a, uh, a talk by a, a lovely Tibetan Buddhist monk. He is a, a Frenchman, a French scientist by background. He now lives in a little two-meter by three-meter hermitage in the Himalayas. I'm sure many of you have seen this video on TED. And... Uh, he was talking about the reaction of the French intellectual community to all the hoopla around happiness. And one person <laughs> took it on upon himself, one person from this community took it upon himself to sort of encapsulate the community's uh, reaction to all this happiness stuff. And the, and the monk sort of summarized his article as follows, he says, don't impose upon us this dirty business of happiness. We don't care about being happy. We care about living life with passion. We like the ups and downs of life. We like our suffering because it feels so good when it stops once in a while. Well, it's a little different for us. That, we, you know, when you're a kid and you went on that roller coaster at the amusement park and you'd go once and, oh, that's great, I'm going to do it again. And you do it again and, and maybe you have something to eat in between and then, and then you, they do it again. And, you know, after a few times, it's sort of like you're done. You're more than done with that roller coaster. And in our case, after a few million incarnations on the roller coaster, we're done with it and we want to know how to get off. And that cultivating the spirit of even-mindedness, as Master said, even-minded and cheerful. That's the way of the yogi. And the question comes, how do we cultivate this even-mindedness? I mean, you either have it or you don't, right? And in the moment, that's really true. Uh, when, when, When everything strikes, you can either respond in an even-minded way or not. I remember once um, Swami was holding a question-and-answer satsang and someone asked a question, Swamiji, uh, how do we concentrate? And Swami said, that's like asking how do you get up out of bed in the morning? You just do it. And if you can do it, you do it. If you can't do it, You don't, and that's really how it is with all of these attitudes of the spiritual life. Right in the moment, you either do it or you don't. You either can or you can't. But there are a couple of other helps for that. I was just sent an email yesterday from uh, Dhyana over in uh, Ananda Girgan in India, and they are making some uh, Why I Meditate Videos with some of their uh, members there. And the latest video came from a person, a woman who is a, a movie producer, movie director, I should say. And she has, it's, a lo- it's a lovely little testimonial, minute and 45 seconds. Says all, uh, but see, you know, if you've ever been on a movie set, you know that they can be a little chaotic, uh, a bit frenetic, uh, kind of high temperature sorts of things. Uh, lots of roller coaster stuff going on in these. And, She's saying that because of my meditation over the years, I've been able to be even-minded in these situations as they come up to such an extent that my crew calls me Captain Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that's such a beautiful testimonial. That's even-mindedness. It comes with what we were talking about yesterday with this deep, sincere meditation over, well, the longer the period of time, the easier it is to be even-minded in these situations. But there's another, there's another approach to even-mindedness. If we maybe don't have it right in the instant and maybe our years or months or days or whatever it is, hours of meditation haven't quite added up to the right thing yet where we can stay even-minded in that moment, and this is where the, what we learn from all the yoga practices, all the yoga techniques comes in so handy because the ancient yogis observe this very simple thing. Swami writes about an Art and Science of Raja Yoga. This very simple fact of our nature as human beings that as we're riding that emotional roller coaster, these states of mind are totally correlated with the up and down movements of energy in the spine. We all know this. Everybody in the world knows it because it's so much a part of our human nature that it's pretty much impossible to ignore. But yoga takes that fact and packages it in such a way that that says, look, your states of mind do indeed influence the way energy moves in your body. But isn't it interesting that if you maybe can't hold on to those states of mind the way you'd like, maybe you can't be right in the moment as even-minded as you'd like to be if you have just a few moments to take hold of the energy in the spine, not as subtle as states of mind, a little easier to get your, your metaphorical hands-on energy and keep it from just going that up and down, up and down of the roller coaster. You can be even-minded in the moment. And so the energization exercises, which Maria was talking about so passionately yesterday, they teach us that. They teach us that control of the life force like nothing else I've ever experienced. The, The pranayama breathing techniques are fabulous for teaching, giving the control of the life force that if you don't have it right in that instant, you can get it very, very quickly. And learn to be even-minded. This is why I call, I like to refer to yoga, especially when I'm talking to a, a more general audience, as a technology for happiness. Because it is simply works on the principles of our own being. There's no magic there. There's magic outside of yoga when divine grace comes in, but there's no magic in yoga itself. It's just so simple and so elegant and so effective that it works, and it can be used. The same principle can be used. It's not just even-mindedness. For any of these attitudes that we've been talking about today, for any attitude you can think about, You can use your ability to work with energy to cultivate that attitude. Now, that's the even-minded part. That's the creating a doorway that we can walk through into a place of much greater happiness. But what about the cheerful part? When I first heard even-minded and cheerful, I thought, it sounds a little corny cheerful. Like you're supposed to be walking around with a grin on your face all the time and sort of a little bounciness in your step. I'm cheerful. I'm cheerful. And it wasn't until a bit later when I, when I realized that to a great extent this cheerfulness is just simply about saying yes to life. Saying yes to the things that come our way. Because when we don't When we resist, when we sit there wishing that life were other than it was, our energy is being drained. We're just losing energy on a regular basis. But when we say yes, it is an act of energy. Even if we're not enthusiastic about going to the school that's very difficult to go to, the act of saying yes just brings the energy that takes us from being in the perfect condition for happiness to stepping over the threshold, stepping through that doorway. Or maybe a better analogy is stepping up to the state of happiness. That saying yes, gives us the energy that can take us there. Now, I had an interesting experience last year. Uh, in my annual seclusion. I wish it were more than annual, but annual is good. And I got attacked in my seclusion. I got attacked by a poem. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where something like that just grabs you and won't let go until you do it. So... I hesitate to say how many of my meditations were distracted into thinking about this poem. But I I got it written by the end of the seclusion, and I thought, done with that. Then I thought, well, gee, that's, don't think that was just for me. Shouldn't I kind of share it somewhere? And so I ask uh, about maybe an Expanding Light website, Maybe that'd be posted. And the answer was, well, you know, there's really not a place for a poem on the Expanding Light website. And I was, all right, I was even minded about that. No big deal. And then I thought, ah, Clarity Magazine. That's a place for this poem. And I asked about that, and the answer was, eh, you know, Clarity Magazine doesn't really do poetry. And I thought, okay, I stayed even minded about that. And I just kind of put everything in the back burner for a while. And then yesterday afternoon, I was thinking. (laughs) Gosh. (laughs) This poem, which, by the way, is called The Secret of Happiness, kind of applies to this week. In fact, with a little tweaking, very little tweaking, I could... uh, sort of summarize everything we've talked about so far, including since I knew what their topics were going to be. Including what we've talked about. (laughs) This won't hurt a bit. (laughs) The secret of happiness, also called Ode to Right Attitude. Ah, sweet happiness, so often sought in places and ways where it simply is not. In people and things and events which don't last. In sensory pleasure and living life fast. In being admired in having our way. In power, in fame, in lucrative pay. The happiness these bring is fleeting indeed. We want happiness that endures, guaranteed. The key lies in attitude, which is good news for whatever else happens, that we can choose. Sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's not, but always it matters, and sometimes a lot. So ask God to help you as you do your part to be even-minded and cheerful of heart, be ever awake and ready to go. Muster your courage. Charge into the flow of all that life brings, for it's from the divine. Seek only the spirit and stay in your spine. Say yes to life if joy is your goal. Take charge of your attitude. Live from your soul. Then happiness won't have to wait one more day, for it isn't complex and it's not far away. Joy is within you. Claim it through how you're living your life In the here and the now. (laughs) Got that one out of my spine. (laughs) Okay. I wanted to read with you just a couple of quotations from this book. Really get it if you don't have it. It's fabulous. Some of them sound so simplistic that you think, did you and underwrite this? It sounds too easy. Well, simple and easy are different things. But it is simple. He writes, each act of being happy will help you cultivate the habit of always being happy. Pay no attention if your mind tells you that you can never be happy. Just remember to start being happy now. And every moment say... I am happy now. Do that for a moment. Just say, I am happy now. Inside. <laughs> I am happy now. And keep being happy. If you can continuously do that, then when you look back, you can say, I have been very happy. And when you, when you look at yourself now, you'll say, I am happy And when you look ahead, you will say, I know that I shall be happy. Because you have the skill of being happy. All your future happiness depends upon how happy you are now. So start being happy in capital letters now. There's another I'd like to share with you. Some people smile most of the time while they hide a sorrow-corroded heart. Such people slowly pine away beneath the shadows of meaningless smiles. There are other people who smile once in a while, yet have beneath the surface a million fountains of laughing peace. Learn to be secretly happy within, the heart, within your heart in spite of all circumstances and say to yourself, happiness is the greatest divine birthright. The buried treasure of my soul, I have found that I am secretly rich beyond the dream of kings. May we all find inside of us and always a million fountains of laughing peace. So we'll lead all of us in a sing-along of Cherish These. Is there
0: anywhere on earth Perfect freedom, sorrow's dearth Selfless friendship, blameless birth Cherish These
3: Nought else has
0: worth Is there anywhere on earth Perfect freedom, sorrow's dearth Selfless friendship, blameless birth Cherish thee Not else has worked